those struggling with addiction need you to be here tomorrow as well as today. Thank you for joining me here on the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, the CEO of Circle Social Inc., a strategic marketing consultancy firm for addiction treatment and behavioral health. Today, we are speaking with Lee Peterson. He is the founder and CEO of Gold Insights Consulting, and they have a focus on helping providers move in network. So Lee was actually part of the team that built all of the Hazleton contracts um, when they decided to move in network. So very, very exciting opportunity to kind of have him on and talk through a lot of his experience. Before we jump in there, though, obviously, let's get a word from our wonderful sponsor. Professionals like those that listen to the Recovery Executive podcast know that technology-assisted care is improving all aspects of healthcare. Addiction treatment is no different. Soberlink is an accountability tool that's helped thousands of people in early recovery. If you haven't heard of Soberlink, it's a discrete alcohol monitoring system with real-time results and reports. You can improve your client's outcomes with the latest technology recommended by four out of five treatment providers. For a limited time and for Recovery Executive Podcast listeners, you can get a free Soberlink device by visiting www.soberlink.com free. As always, I appreciate our sponsors and I highly recommend that anyone listening reach out to them for any services that are needed. The conversation with Lee today is is really good one. I, I really enjoyed it. You know, uh, in-network contract negotiations are something that a lot of our clients are working through right now. And we provide some insights based on call tracking or data, but we don't do a lot around actually providing the walkthrough of that process and what is a good contract negotiation? How do you go about it? So I'm kind of excited that we're partnering with Lee on that to help clients kind of move through that process. But I wanted to have him on the podcast to make sure that he could help all of our listeners do it, you know, maybe if they're trying to do it on their own, or at least just to understand the, the process and what are some snags that might come up or what are some successful strategies that are important to know before going into that process and during that process. So at least insights are just incredibly valuable. Uh, and I think this is really the wave of the future, right? It's not that everyone needs to go in network. There are reasons to stay out of network at times, but we're constantly seeing that out of network rate be reduced, right? It's not as sustainable as it used to be. And so these questions keep coming up about how do we move in network? Who do we move in network with? And the reality is that that's going to be, need to be a significant part of your payer mix at some point, you know? Unless you're a really small provider with really specialized care, just staying out of network is probably going to be unsustainable across the board. It doesn't mean you can't have out of network in some aspects of your mix, but the in-network piece is becoming more and more important. So let's listen to what Lee has to say and have him share his insights on how to make this process successful. Can you just introduce yourself a little bit and tell us what you do in the past as well as right now? Sure. Lee Peterson with Golden Insights Consulting. I uh, help providers get in network with insurance companies, uh, help them manage that relationship, and really try to strive in a new world where they're working with insurance companies to get to the patient's betterment. Uh, In my past, I've done a lot with acute care systems uh, in the Minneapolis market. Uh, That led to me being at Hazel and Betty Ford and really helping them go from a 
50% payer mix of self-pay, 50% insurance to really a 95% insurance and 5% self-pay mix. And uh, not there were struggles, but kind of coming through their side, striving and uh, thriving. And, and that's what we want is for people to partner with insurance companies to better their own business and also to help more people. So you were actually part of the team, um, or how much of it were you leading at Hazleton in terms of getting all of their in-network contracts lined up initially? Sure. So I know you previously had Bob Biznanovich on, on your podcast, and I think the world of Bob. Bob and I worked together. We were basically joined at the hip. Um, Bob had an employee named Pablo McCabe, and Pablo was kind of the boots on the ground getting the introductions to the new insurance companies, especially when we, when we went to the West Coast and open up the Betty Ford Center as part of an in-network option. And then uh, I managed the contract. So if you think about it as just the contracting, it was me. The relationship was a team effort. Um, and then the, the kind of the, the drive and the, the boots in the ground was definitely Bob's team. So it was 100% a partnership. Okay. And then I think something that I'm interested in and listeners are interested in is a lot of people are trying to move in network right now. And what they do is they just reach out and say, Hey, you know, insurance payer, we want to go in network, but your work and a lot of the efforts that you have has resulted in better contracts for Hazleton and the providers that you're working with. What are some of the differences in terms of results or contract negotiations that you can get by having an experienced person doing this rather than just trying to do it on your own? Uh, I think the, that's a great question. The biggest thing is that it was exactly what you said. You're, you're focusing on the contract and getting the contract. And I think when you have more experience, you'll realize the key is not getting the contract. It's building that relationship. A, a contract is like an invitation to a high school dance. It gets you, gets you inside the gym, but unless you have someone to dance with, you're going to feel kind of goofy and not really get anywhere. So, you should really be working on building a relationship. And, and that starts with knowing what you offer. Uh, you know, it's funny. I, I sat down before with uh, people much smarter than me when it comes to 12 steps. And the 12 steps really apply a whole lot to what a company should be going through. You know, admit that you don't know anything, you might need help. Or find someone that can help you. Take an inventory of what you have. Um, a fearless one. And say, you know, where do you struggle? Where are your strengths? And when you know that, then you can kind of go forward. Um, when you walk into your first insurance negotiation, there's a lot of things you probably don't realize. Um, you're not going to know what the payers range for a given services, what they pay at. You're not going to know that because you, they're not going to just tell you. They're, they're smart enough not to. Um, you're not going to just know what's included with a payer's payments. Do they include mental health with their IOP or day treatment? Do they include an assessment in, in the payment for the services. There's a lots of things that, you know, you have to ask questions. And sometimes you feel dumb asking these questions, but you have to do that in order to find out exactly what's expected and what's included. It's not always super forthright. Um, well, pew, a huge, huge piece is, and this comes with experience and research, how does the payer define different levels? Um, what's IOP? Is it two hours? Is it four hours? Is it three hours? You know, day treatment or partial hospitalization, what do they call it? Uh, what's the hour minimum there? What's the week minimum? What, what are the ideas there of how they define the service? Does residential require nursing or doctor visits? Um, and what is the insurance company's medical necessity or criteria? All these things can be 
every bit as important, probably even more important than the rates you get paid because they can serve as barriers to getting patients in the door. You can have the best rates in the world, but if you can't have patients meet the criteria to get paid those rates, the rates are worthless. Hmm, that's really so interesting. So what are, what are some of the requirements that might come up? Um, insurance companies in the past have said, you know, in order to get residential, you have to have, you know, failed, I don't even like the word failed, but um, unsuccessful outpatient treatment sessions first. You have to be, you know, actively using within a certain time period. You know, uh, partial hospitalization, do you have to have a doctor on site? Do you have to have a doctor visit every day? Uh, I worked with an insurance company that said that a nursing station has to be located within eight feet of the patient's room for residential. Um, you know, these are things that are not even part of the contract and they're part of the provider manual. And, but, no, but you're still signing up for them when you sign a contract. So that's interesting. So how do you deal with, can you negotiate those pieces in the contract? Or are you just saying that we have to be aware of them before going into the negotiation that those are kind of policy requirements? They're policy things you need to be aware of. You can work once you're with them to change, but it, it's a slow change. It took us almost a year to get that one company to change the eight foot requirement. And it, it took a site visit to say, hey, you know, the, we're offering, this is at Hazelden, we're offering a, a very top notch residential program but we don't have nurses within eight feet of the rooms. That's not a residential model. That's an acute care model. And they were willing enough to look at that. And, and that was a good thing. So I think I want to go back to that first comment you made then is, and this is something that we tell clients all the time is when you initiate an in-network contract negotiation, it's not about getting the rate that you want right away all the time. You can obviously negotiate higher if you know what you're doing but it's actually a long-term relationship building process and then going back to the table year after year once there's trust built between you and the payer and then saying okay now you understand us we understand you and here's the rates that we're looking for is that correct oh 100 percent. it's all about the relationship what have you seen in those relationships as you've built them with the payers in terms of what's really important what are the, what are the payers looking for in that relationship i think the biggest thing is malleability and honesty. Everyone kind of expects, everyone holds themselves to a, a expectation that they're going to come in network and be perfect, but that's not true. Even if you've been doing it for, you know, 75 years, when you go into that a relationship, you're going to be doing things a little differently than what the insurance company expects, and they might be doing things a little bit differently than what your experience has been. But knowing that you're going to come together and you're going to learn together and grow together, and that Things can be fixed and feedback can be given and services can be, you know, can be molded to meet the needs and expectations of both parties. That's there. Um, that's the key. And we, a lot of people think of an insurance com company as a, a bad guy or a necessary evil. And, and that's not true. They have the, almost the exact same goal that the provider has. They want to see their members, the provide, provider's patients, well. Um, they may have different ideas of how to manage the cost for that, and they may have different ideas and different experiences on how to do that best, but they want to see the same thing. So I, I say when you have a relationship, be open to saying, here's where we can improve. Listen to how you can help them, and, and don't be afraid to offer feedback when things are frustrating. Um, they, they want to work with you. It just We don't do a great job all the time of working with them. 
Yeah, I think it's just reiterating the point that there obviously is a certain level of distrust with the payers in the field of addiction treatment in particular. And so you, you have to work to overcome that. And so it's going to be harder for you to do it than, for example, like a hospital system. Exactly. And, and that, that lack of trust goes both ways. Um, yeah. And that's something that just because, you know, just because you're a, a credible provider doesn't mean that all their experiences have been with credible providers. And there's a reason why they're hesitant or they have these safeguards in place. Yeah. I mean, we talk to a lot of our clients that are trying to go and network and they get that response back like, well, how do we know? How do we trust you? And I just tell them to be prepared for that. They're going to ask you, right? And you're going to have to get them to do site visits. You're going to have to have multiple follow-ups because they've been burned, you know, a certain number of times already. And you've got to prove that you are going to do what you say you're going to do and that you provide quality care because the other people that burned them said the same things <laughs> before they started a contract, you know. It's exactly like the old saying goes, I, I hear what you say, but I trust what you do. Yeah. H- have, have those site visits. Take it, take it slow. Don't rush into a, an insurance contract because that's what, you know, we've all seen the movie The Music Man. If you haven't, I recommend it. But the guy comes into town and he sells them all kinds of promises and takes their money and runs. Yeah. Take, take time. You're, if you're doing an insurance contract for a one-year gain, you're doing it wrong. It should be a, 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 long, a long change, a new way of life. And it's one that takes a lot of changes both internally and externally. So let's step back a little bit. We're kind of jumping the gun. Before you even go to the table with the payers and say, hey, we're interested in an in-network relationship with you guys, what does the provider need to have in place to make sure that that's even a conversation they're willing to entertain? The first thing you need to do is really have an in-depth team, a team of leadership, a team of different areas, and say, you know, clinically, are we willing to bend our services? Are we willing to offer additional things we're not going to get reimbursed for? Are we willing to document? Documentation is such a key piece that a lot of people don't realize how much is needed. That is the, if you're going to invest in one area to really just get good at for an insurance partner partnership, I would definitely recommend documentation. Having someone who is a, you know, can speak the language of what's going on and, and communicate it better than, than I, I could or sometimes a clinician could is, is just unbelievably valuable. The, uh, the thing also to, to think about is the financial statements. Um, you're going to be switching a lot. It used to be, and we had this problem in Hazelden after you know, being in network with, for 10 years with places is saying, knowing their swings, knowing that as insurance volume rises, your old metrics may not be good and analytics are so key. Uh, knowing that it really doesn't matter as, as much anymore what you charge for a service, it's what you get paid that matters. And that means a different kind of accounting. And sometimes people have problems with that. Um, budgeting, you know, there's gonna be swings now in terms of time of year. You're going to sometimes see things smooth out. Sometimes you're going to have more ebbs and flows, depending on the level of care. What do you think are some factors with that? Why, why do you think you're seeing those ebbs and flows with the in-network contracts? Well, the biggest thing is that, you know, you see like in December, no one wants to come in for, for, for care. They don't want to be gone from their family for the holidays, even though in some cases it might be the very best thing for their family and for them. Uh, you see outpatient care, a greater focus on outpatient care when you're in network. So you might see a longer overall engagement with the patient. Um, so that might help smooth some some levels out on the outpatient side. 
but you're gonna have more ebbs and flows in especially initially on the residential side or the inpatient side and something you hit on there and this is a conversation we've had with a couple of clients is they're concerned about moving in network due to the lower reimbursement rates that they're not going to be able to provide the same quality of care that they have in the past. And so their response is, you know what, we're not going to do this because we need a higher reimbursement rate to provide the quality that we want to provide that we think patients need. And we don't want that as dictated by insurance. So I'm sure Hazleton probably had some of those similar internal conversations. Um, Can you just kind of walk us through your thinking on that? Sure. That's exactly it. You know, the, the thing I wonder about sometimes is the scalability. And the, the, what I always wonder about is how much of the cost is, and this is going to get really kind of business-like, so I apologize, how much of the cost is overhead? You know, your, your building, your administration, those are costs that don't necessarily go up or down with volume changes. The goal, if you take a step back even further, the overall equation has to be your payment rate times your volume equals your revenue. And so when we take that equation, we're going to take a drop in payment rate and we're going to increase the volume and hope that that increase in volume far offsets the decrease in rate. But with that increase in volume, we also see an increase in probably clinicians needed and an increase in work being done. So it's not always a fair trade. It's not always just a simple math trade. It's not just saying, well, we're going to see twice as many patients for half as much money. We're going to be in the same revenue spot. It doesn't work that way because with twice as many patients, you probably need to add more clinicians. So now you have more cost. Seeing ways you can gain efficiency, seeing ways that you can operate the services and expand the volume helps you kind of find out where that floor of what you can accept is. No one's telling you that, or no one should be telling you that you have to get in network no matter what because if you're providing a service that costs more to produce than it does to be getting paid, that's not a good business model. That's a, a horrible one, actually. Not Being a not-for-profit doesn't have to be a literal thing. Another thing that really kind of comes up as a, if a lot of people don't think about, too, is the the certifications that one needs to, to get in network. Um, a great story, and um, probably not great for the people who are included in it, including myself, but when Hazelden opened their West L.A. Center, we were told, oh, you don't need an insurance certificate. That's just a, a optional thing. Well, it's true. You don't need some certificate certifications to open and, and run. But most insurance companies require them as a way to prove that you're a legit provider. Well, not having that right away set us back six months in, in the process of getting in network. If we would have done a better research ahead of time and really kind of dug in things, we would have seen that and been quicker on things. So really taking that that scope to see what's included in in what's necessary for the insurance company it is so crucial doing the math doing the the checklist and, and knowing and having a good timeline based on what's needed based on an internal assessment it is so critical so anything else in terms of what you found out that was required that you know other people should need to be aware of you just mentioned that certification for example yeah, that, that was the big one. Um, most states have something like that. The Joint Commission is one where if you can get that one, you're, you're good. But that one's a, a very intensive one. It's, it's hard to get, especially for a smaller provider. Um, the other thing is credentialing. You know, you want to offer mental health services, you're going to have to get individually credentialed. That's a three- to four-month process with most insurance companies. 
that's no small undertaking. You know, most people jump into insurance companies and jump into the, the contracting with insurance companies because they have a need and an urgent need and they want to get a network contract to, to kind of save their business. And they may not have four months to to get that set up. It, it may not, they may not have that kind of business plan. That's why you got to get these things started as soon as possible and start having these questions and these thoughts before you need them. And you can go ahead and get some of these certifications ahead of time. It doesn't mean you have to then immediately start negotiating in network contracts. You can just have that in place so that once you move forward, you know, you're ready to go. Yeah, it takes some time. I mean, you're dealing with the government, so there's going to be time where you're going to be waiting six weeks for, for steps to be taken care of. Sure. So any tips that you're having in terms of that entire process, or maybe why don't we start, why don't you just kind of walk us through the process? What is the process of once you want to start going in network and you've gotten these certifications that you need? Um, what are the timelines? What steps occur? You know, just kind of help us understand that. Sure. So again, the, the first thing I always say is, you know, if you start at the very beginning, you want to have an internal team built and you want to have people from finance, people from admissions, people from operations, and so forth. So you can sit down and say, all right, here's the application. And you can generally get the application from most websites um, for that insurance company. And they'll tell you what's required. And generally that will provide a handbook. You're gonna wanna review that. You're gonna wanna see how things are done with them and, and have an honest discussion about, can we do this? And, and not just, can we do this, but will we be successful doing this? Um, you know, I, I've been in teams with a lot of clinicians and there's always, uh, talk about well, we can do this if or if this happens then we'll be successful but have an honest discussion of is it likely is it probable that we will be successful and we will have these returns once you get that going on I would say uh, especially in this modern age one of the best tools we have is LinkedIn and uh, I'm gonna use this phrase and I mean it completely uh, lightheartedly but stock people on LinkedIn do your research find out who network managers are at, at different insurance companies. Go to conferences or seminars, any place where the insurance company may have a booth, and talk to the people there about getting in network. Um, they have those booths largely for that reason, and in many cases, those people will help you get in network. I know oftentimes people hear, well, we already have enough providers in your area. That may be true, but if they're setting up a booth looking for new providers, they have some sort of need. You know, there is a there's nothing wrong with going on the company's website as well and and doing a search for a, they have always have a find find a doctor find a facility function on their websites for their members if you can log in there or just go in there and see can, what is the market saturation in your area who are your competition do you have friends do you have uh, former coworkers you can reach out to about who they work with or how how they enjoy with the insurance company what they've learned from them uh, i'm always amazed at how much people help you if you just ask when you have that, when you have, you get that application sent in, follow up with people. You know, if you're not getting anywhere, it doesn't hurt to ask people, even if you don't know them, if they can help you or what the status is on these things. Stay on them uh, because they, they, their job is to help you and in most cases they will. Or they'll give you feedback that you're not needed, in which case you're right where you started and you, you don't really lose anything. Why don't we kind of like break it down a little bit more? So you're saying that the initial step is to kind of go on the website and just send, fill out an application. Is that right? 
I'd say download the application. Don't fill it out right away. Okay. So once you have the application, then you're saying go back to your internal team, have this discussion, make sure that it's the right move. And something that we always mention to clients is, you know, track your numbers and see what kind of calls you're getting for what insurance providers, especially in network. And if you're getting a ton of calls, like if you get a ton of BCBS calls or a ton of Kaiser Permanente calls, then you should probably start with them, right? In terms of looking at in-network contract negotiations. But so you have that discussion, then what do you do? Exactly, okay, so once you have the discussion, you know, you, you want to have a conversation with them. You want to work with the insurance company to have, not just send an application and wait for them to get back to you, but take an active role in this. Start saying, put a little effort in and say, how can we talk to you while we go through this process? So you can kind of start building that relationship. A lot of people think that just sitting in the application, signing a contract is the goal. But like we said earlier, it's about that relationship. You know, when Pablo, Bob and I work, we had a, a slogan and a, I don't know if it was a slogan or a motto or a mission, but we would say it in almost every meeting and we meant it wholeheartedly. We don't want to be a network provider. We want to be a network partner. And, and that means that you can't get that way if you, all you're doing is signing a contract, sending in a claim, and going back. That's a provider. A partner talks to the to the insurance company, talks to the provider, and says, "What's going on? What needs do you have that we can fill? What what's your pain points? How can we help you solve things?" You know, we've had relationships with United Healthcare, UBH. We had relationships with Magellan, two companies that are thought of to be absolutely horrible to work with. And I can tell you that by talking to them and listening to their pain points and working with them and having good discussions where we owned things that we didn't do well and we helped them out with things that we could help them out with, we built great relationships with them and, and very successful ones that led to centers of excellence and uh, new pilot programs that were incredibly successful, both from a revenue perspective as well as clinically. And who is this person that you're talking to? Who's that initial point of contact when you reach out? Sure. Generally, generally can be a network manager or, uh, you know, somewhere in, in their networking program. And the other thing to remember, too, is when you're working with an insurance company, they have very, they have a bunch of different areas that you need to work with in order to be successful. You need to work with network management. You need to be able to get a sign-up from their clinicians and their clinical side. You're going to need to make sure that operationally you can send them in claims the way they want them. And you might want to work with their marketing area to make sure that, they can, they can advertise for you or that they can, you know, you'll be presented in a positive light. Any one of these areas, if you ignore them, is going to set you back a little ways. So you're going to want to really think of things, and this is where it's hard, you got to think of things as how the insurance company sees it. Put yourself in their shoes. We as providers want to, you know, treat people. But the insurance company has a balancing act to do. They have to not only want to see their members get the care they need, but they also want to be an affordable and efficient and effective option for their employer groups. They don't have employer groups. They don't have patients to send us. So we have to make sure that, like, like you said, if you're getting calls from them, that's the absolute best thing. Know that there's some volume there to be able to say, hey, we have this volume coming in, so obviously you have a need because your, your members are calling us. We want to be able to work with you and, prevent, pre pre and present a solution for you. And then it's a collaborative effort from there. Okay. So you've had this kind of collaborative conversation. You've talked to the payers about what they need as well as what you can provide. You've got this form. So at that point, are you going to fill out the form and then send it to them? Yes. And, and usually then if you're having a conversation, you can ask for 
once they have the once they have your application, ask for the boilerplate. You know, if you're sent to a legal team or review it yourself, start their review and get a head start on that. And then talk about rates. Know where you need to be internally to provide an IOP session, provide a day of partial hospitalization or residential care. Know these things. And if you've done your job well in establishing that relationship, you're going to have a more motivated buyer on your side in, in the insurance company. They're going to want to work with you. You're going to meet their clinical needs. They're going to have less worries about you. They're going to be able to put you in that better payment box where you get paid a little better. Okay, and how long does that initial process take? You know, the initial conversations, the team review, to actually submitting the application? That could be a month. It could be a month to two weeks, depending on how responsive your team is and how, how long the application is. Okay, and then you've said there's kind of a hurry up and wait after that point. So what's the time frame? What happens next? So when you, when you have that meeting with them following that, you're probably looking, depending on schedule, now you might be a month out, month out from the application. So you're six weeks to two months out. Then you have negotiations that could go real quick sometimes. Sometimes it take a little longer. But if you, if you did your job right in establishing that relationship, it goes pretty quick. And you probably, within two weeks, have rates agreed to. I always recommend, too, don't negotiate rates over email. Have a phone call. Have a phone call where you can have give and take over the phone. You can have a conversation, you can establish a relationship, you can ask questions about where someone can or cannot bend. People are a lot more willing to share information over the phone than they are on an email that can be shared with multiple people. Once you have that contract signed, generally there's gonna be about a 60 to 90 day uh, wait before you're fully in network. This could be while you're, while you're being credentialed, both as a, as a facility or as an individual. It can be while the insurance company is setting up the payment terms in, the, in their operating system. There's a lot of things that go on during this time. This, a lot of times, providers just stop and wait during this time. That's not always a great thing. The better thing to do is take advantage of this time, reach out to the insurance company, and ask them. Ask them to do a walkthrough. Ask them to have discussions with your business office. Ask them to, uh, you know, review sample claims. Anything you can do to make things go smoother later on is going to be wholeheartedly beneficial to you, and you're taking advantage of otherwise dead time. The, the final thing, I, I always thought this was the really key thing we did. And I, as much as it pains me to say nice things about Bob, I'm going to say Bob, give Bob credit for this one, <laughs> is that we, act, we actively worked and we would not set up a contract if the insurance company would not agree to have conversations with us following us going live, 30 days out, 60 days out, 90 days out, so that we could get feedback. We could discuss cases that maybe went sideways. We could learn how we can best work together. Um, that was really you know, that's how you build the relationship is the insurance companies expect there to be a learning curve. They 100% do. They just want someone who's willing to take ownership for their mistakes and get better. And if you're doing that, you're separating yourself out from those bad providers that, you know, give the rest of us a bad name. So there's a lot of communication going on here. You recommend setting up a point person? Like what background should that point person be? Is it clinical? Is it operations? Is it billing? You know, it's someone who's a good communicator. Someone who's a good communicator who's can influence without um, can influence both sides. Someone who is a can-do person. I'm I'm always a big believer that an optimist is the best thing you can be. Um, you you want someone like you said, it's a lot of communication. You want someone who can kind of go back and say, hey, we need to figure out a different way to do this, and and really understands the why, the why you're going insurance with the insurance company. 
you're doing it most most times to help more people and stay afloat financially. You know, it does you no good if you're not working well with the insurance company because they're not going to pay you if you're not, you know, doing the things they're asking you for, and they're not going to send you patients. So you're not really accomplishing any of those goals if you're not working well with them. And that's something a lot of providers hope is that the payer is actually going to help them, you know, in terms of sending them referrals for in-network um, patients. Is that something that you've seen happen at the providers you're working with? It, it, yeah, it definitely takes a little bit of time for the patient flow to come up here. I mean, it, it's funny when we're not in network, you hear, you see all the calls about, oh, we're, we're having 50 calls come in from, you know, XYZ insurance company. We should get this network contract and then we'll have 50 more patients every month. But the truth is not that at all. The truth is, is that just like most places where you have, you may get 50 calls that may lead to, I don't know, 15 admissions, you're going to have that same rate go in there and you're going to still see things and you're going to have patients that are turned down now for medical necessity reasons or not authorization, no authorization reasons. And there's going to be hiccups. There's going to be system issues at the insurance side where they're going to tell you you're out of network, even though you know you're in network. Um, they're going to have narrow network plans where you really are out of network. There's it's just, it's a lot of growth, a lot of process, and it takes a while to kind of learn all those different caveats that help thing go smoother once you understand it. Hmm. And then you're saying, so let's use that example, you know, you're getting 50 calls a month for a particular payer. And then after you go in network, do you see that at least that call volume increase at some point too, where they are sending you patients? You, you should see it. You should see it go up. And part of the reason is this, is that when you think about how people find insurance or go find a in find a provider, I just messed that up. Let me start over again. When you think about how people find a provider, there's a couple ways. They can have word of mouth. They can, you know, do a Google search. Or they could go to their insurance website and say, who's an in-network provider? Well, obviously, the first two volumes shouldn't change with you by jumping in-network with someone. But the third one will when you have an, another source where they can say, hey, I'm in-network. Here's my phone number. That's a great help. And then when you can expand their relationship and, and meet their needs and show that you're a great partner and work towards getting into centers of excellence, well, now you're going to be at the top of the list and you're going to have the insurance company recommend you or maybe give you extra stars or something or be a preferred provider. Anything you can do to kind of you know help differentiate yourself even more so once you're in network. Okay, and we've covered a, you know, a lot of kind of a general advice around obstacles or things that you should have prepared. Do you have any tips around working with specific payers that you found out were differences, you know, as you kind of went in network with different people? The, the key I always say is know what people call different levels of care. Um, the greatest example I could think of is outpatient. Um, some people think outpatient is mental health, you know, done a mental health professional built on a 1500. Some people think outpatient is a less intensive IOP where it's done in a group setting, 45 minutes or so, just a way to keep someone engaged like a uh, continuing care episode. Make sure you're speaking the same language as the insurance company. And it's not hard because sometimes that means that internally you're speaking two or three different languages, but having that communication is so key. I would also say too that develop relationships with you know the contracting reps. Know that if you just, there's something that comes up that looks funny, if someone tells you you're out of network, Shoot them an email. Ask them what's going on, and ask for explanations. You know, people are systems go down all the time. People are generally easier to work with. 
when you are in network, documentation is so, so critical. It's one of those things that can never be good enough. It, it is absolutely the key because, you, you know, it all comes down to communication and the better you can communicate what's going on in care, the more likely you're to get days approved, the more likely you're going to see fewer denials, the more likely you're going to get um, admissions approved because you're going to have a better idea of what's going on and the insurance company is going to know better what's going on. So oftentimes people kind of skimp on the documentation because it's not fun. It's horrible. It's not, you know, you have to sit down and if you're a group of eight people, write down eight notes for eight people for each, you know, three-hour session. That's a lot of work. But you, you have to do it if you want to show the insurance company. And there's oftentimes different insurance companies for those eight people. What's going on and how that person's growing and how that person's needs are met. Yeah, that's the thing. You have to individualize those comments, right? A lot of people like to copy paste or just put generic no, and that doesn't have the same weight with the insurance companies in terms of payment. In fact, most times if they see it's going on, they're more likely just to deny care altogether. And, and kind of, it's funny because one of the common feedbacks we heard at Hazelden is that we didn't, they didn't like us being so programmatic, having ideas of how many days people should be in care. But at the same time, they had kind of the same approach. They would only authorize X number of days of each level of care. And what, what turned out being is that we both had ideas and we both had criteria and we weren't willing to bend enough to kind of change the other, change the other's way to get more days. And, and that's kind of a, what you want to avoid. You want to be more of a, a malleable partner. You know, and part of that is when you kind of jump in back a little ways, when we talk about ways you can contract, there are ways you can contract where as a provider you take on more risk and you get better payment. Uh, you, you can take on a, a case rate where you're saying, I want to be responsible for this patient's care, getting them from point A in their life to point B in their life. I, th I think that's worth X number of dollars and you want to be held accountable for an outcome. Uh, when you're willing to do that kind of step, it's easier to work with an insurance company because they're paying for an outcome, not paying for the individual steps. But they're going to hold you accountable for those outcomes, and you have you, have, you better have a way to measure how how you define success. So we hear a lot about outcomes actually when we talk about in-network contract negotiations, and just from the payers in general. Um, what's your comment on that? I mean, were you guys bringing outcomes to the table? How necessary is that? What outcomes? That kind of thing. Oh, I'm a big believer in it. I. I one of the, probably the biggest contribution I made at my time in Hazelden there was moving them to outcome-based contracts, moving them to a case rate for residential care, moving them to more pay for performance. I'm a big believer that you put your money where your mouth is. I'm a big believer that you want to differentiate yourself, and I'm a big believer that if the easiest way to differentiate yourself from a bad provider is to make the focus on the outcomes. If you're delivering quality care, that is ultimately saving the insurance company money because you're not paying. They're not paying for readmissions. They're not paying for, you know, 1,200 urinalysis in a given month, which is a true story we heard about. <laughs> yeah. I can't imagine going to the bathroom that much in a year, let alone in a month. But hey, um, so you want to make the focus be on exactly what you're working towards. And if you think about it, a lot of times people want more days. They want more days for one of two reasons. Either they want more days because they want to get paid more or they want more days because they want to help the patient. I believe most, most people want to help the patient. They see better results the more engaged they have the patient, the longer they can keep the patient engaged. I'm all for people saying, if you can do it better and you can do it in 
nine days instead of 14 days, or you can do it in 14 days instead of 28 days. If you can do it in 21 days instead of 28 days, you're building a more efficient, effective process. And that's what you should be striving for. You know, if there was a, a magic pill, magic pill that could, and I know I've seen one advertised before, but I don't think it's real, <laughs> where that could just provide sobriety. People would pay through the nose for it. They'd pay more than they pay currently for like a residential care because there'd be least disruption in their life. You could just take a pill, boom, you're cured. But sometimes, especially when you're dealing with behavioral health, you need that disruption, but you need an appropriate amount of it. And people tend to operate because of fear. They, they, they're, they want to protect people for too long. And then the people kind of step out and they're not prepared. They don't, they're not gradually brought out because they're fighting the insurance company. You keep them in residential for 28 days and then you kick them out in the real world or you send them out. When reality is, is that people operate on a spectrum and they need steps of freedom and the insurance company will, will give that. You can show progress and you can show how you're meeting the, bringing the patient to the care they need at that given time and you're giving appropriate levels of care, they, they appreciate that. They'll pay for that. Yeah, I think a comment I want to make on the outcomes is, you know, and this is the part of the side of the payers that people don't like, but I mean, what they'll do is they'll say, hey, you know, we're giving 20 days for PHP right now. Let's cut it down to 15 and see what happens. And if outcomes don't change, if they're getting the same outcomes on the back end, then they're going to leave it at 15. So, you know, if you're as a provider, if you've got internal tracking and outcomes, you can say, hey, look, we tracked this and we tried 15 days and we tried 20. And when we did 20, we saw this X amount of improvement in outcomes. If you can take that to the payer, then you can fight that kind of assumption. Because sometimes what people are doing is they'll just continue giving the same level of care, right? And then so the payer data doesn't change and to them it looks like 15 days is the same as 20, so why, why give 20? Um, so having your internal data allows you to give arguments and I think in those situations. I couldn't agree more. Data, having the data, having the more knowledge is always beneficial. So in terms of the outcomes that you're tracking, you know, we see this kind of conflict where the payers are looking at things like emergency department visits, connected connection to uh, general practitioners, GPs, compliance with medication, and then providers tend to be tracking things like relapse rates or um, general mood. Do they feel better? You know, what kind of data points were you guys actually providing to the payers? Sure. So the first thing we did is we defined, we defined success. And for us at Hazelden, Success was moving a patient to the next level of care. So that means if you're in residential, you, you move on to an IOP or you move into a partial hospitalization. If you're in partial hospitalization, you move on to an IOP or a group. And we, we tracked all that. I mean, we had a report called the Waterfall Report, and it was something amazing to see because you see patients kind of move through the, through the levels of care, and you could see, you know, are we losing some? Are we? And, and sometimes you lose some because a patient would come from Kansas to California for residential, but need to go back to Kansas for the day treatment. Well, we'd only record the ones that were in our system. But if you worked with an insurance company, they're going to see the whole picture. So they can help with those da with that data. And that's another benefit of working with the insurance companies. You can get actually better data that helps prove your points by working with them and help shaping how they see the, the data. Um, I'm a big believer, actually, in the, uh, in, in the ER rate measure. I think it's phenomenal. If you're doing your job right, you're going to keep people out of the ER. You know, if you're doing your job right, there's going to be few, fewer, you know, CD-related inpatient stays. Um, you're going to actually probably have more medical costs for the first year following care because people are starting to feel good and actually take care of things for a while. 
And but you're going to have over a four or five year period of time, you're going to see that drop dramatically as people kind of get going in a, in a good way and are avoiding expensive uh, residential stays. So with the ED, for example, were you tracking that internally or were you getting that data from the payers? Like, how did that work from the out? Payers. You got from the payers. From the payers. Okay. I'm a big believer that, you know, we can give better information for what's going on inside the four walls, but you really have this longitudinal data that takes place when you're working with an insurance company. That's really kind of special to see. Same thing with readmissions. You know, we, we, we kind of go back and forth on readmissions, but you can self-report readmissions to yourself and that's great, but you might still have patients that are, you know, fed up with you and they leave early. They decide they need to readmit, but they don't want to go back to you, so they go somewhere else. Are you really doing a good job there? I, I don't know. I'm not in a position to say that. But in insurance agency, every place they went, every place they submit a claim for, and, and that's kind of a better judge of quality. Um, you know, I always think, too, if you have that, if you have the insurance company's data and you're using that, working with them, it's hard for them to rebuke anything you say. <laughs> sure. Um, and it, it works the partnership. Absolutely. So I just want to make a, a quick comment on something. So you said day treatment. So going back to having different terms in different places, um, that's a Minnesota term. So what does day treatment mean? Day treatment is another word for partial hospitalization. I'm sorry, my... Uh... My, my old school uh, Minnesota upbringing came through there. Yeah, no, I just love pointing it out because it, it speaks exactly to your point. It is, and that's how insurance payers see it in Minnesota too. They, they say day treatment where, you know, other places in the country were saying PHP. So always interesting. Um, all right, so a couple other questions kind of going back in a few points. So like you said, the network administrators and people that you're working with for um, negotiating network contracts are starting that point. What if you feel like that network administrator is not getting things done? Do you recommend going over their head and reaching out to someone else, or do you just recommend trying to work that relationship? Both. The, the worst thing you do is just automatically go over someone's head. But at the same time, you sometimes have to. I'm a big believer of just calling a spade a spade and saying, hey, you know, we want this to happen. believe you want this to happen. At our levels, we can't make this happen. How can we bring this up a level? And, and sometimes bringing up a level means you bring someone in your room that on your side that completely, completely has no place in there, but he said the big title. Um, and, and that person's job is to agree with you. And it, but it, what it does is it allows the insurance company to bring up another higher up and you can help figure out what the problems are. And there oftentimes it's a matter of communication is a matter of prioritization. Um, and sometimes you're just not going to get it done. Uh, there, you know, Bob and I, I and Pablo, I, I promise you, you're not going to find a better trio anywhere in any organization. And that's me in all humility. Um, but there were there was one or two contracts we just could not get the, the insurance company which would not would not bite on it, and we went without. We had to be okay with that. We had to make it so it was ad, so advantageous for their for their other people then that they lost business because of it. And it's easy to do that when you're a name like Hazel and Betty Ford. It's hard to do that if you're, you know, a mom and pop shop. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's that's an important comment, I think, to make. Like one of our providers in Seattle, they are now the largest behavioral health provider in the entire city, right? And so when they go to the table and negotiate rates, like 
they get phenomenal rates because they just have such a high volume and they're helping so many people, whereas an individual or a smaller treatment center or a smaller behavioral health facility, they just don't have that clout, right? The payer is going to look at you and say, okay, well, you know, you're know, you private, you're in private practice, you're seeing 50 people a year, you know, where we're seeing thousands, like it just doesn't compare. So kind of understanding what, um, what your size is and how that influences, you know, contracts that you might get, I think is important. A great story about that. When my, I first started Hazelden, we had our, our Blue Cross of Minnesota contract up for a negotiation. And it was about a, I don't know, $25 million a year contract. So a sizable contract, definitely the biggest one Hazelden had at the time. And my boss asked me if I was nervous going into it. And I replied, no, because when I was previously at the acute care center system, we, our Blue Cross contract was $800 million. And the increase we got, just the increase in dollars projected was over $25 million. <laughs> So, you know, it's important to recognize that sometimes if you're not if you're dealing with an overall insurance company like a blues and not a, a behavioral health car boat you, you're you're gonna be small compared to acute care and you may be the biggest player in the nation you're still gonna be a speck of sand to them because they're dealing in billions you know united healthcare at 225 billion dollars a year there's nothing that's really too big to them yeah yeah, I think people forget that addiction treatment in particular is like less than 1% of overall healthcare. It's it's just pennies on the dollar, <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, that perspective. But it's funny, it, it's pennies on dollars, but it's so many people have a connection to it. So many people have a, a personal story, uh, a heart string attached to it, or so many people have had, had a bad experience where something went wrong and it was a twenty and it was a $250,000 stay for someone that could have been, you know, $20,000. And so in a way you want to highlight the, highlight that and, and make it personal and get that heartstring attached to it and, and make it so it's not about the economic clout that one organization has. Yeah, I would agree, you know, and it definitely, you know, obviously the, the payers have recognized it as an important area. That's why there's so much focus on it. Um, another co- or question I guess I had is you were, again, talking about kind of continuing that relationship and continuing the conversations post-contract. So what do you recommend in terms of just kind of ongoing communication or maintaining relationships until a contract negotiation? Do you sit back at the table at the one-year point and say, hey, you know, things look good. Can we renegotiate a higher rate? Or what's your recommendation there? I, I like to say, well, most contracts will sometimes, sometimes will be written for like a three-year initial term, but look at, know when that initial, initial term is, and then, yeah, come, come to the table again. But I, I'd say if that's the next time you talk to them after you sign your contract, you're going to get nowhere. Hopefully, you're meeting with them on a monthly basis to discuss cases. Discuss cases that went well. Discuss cases that didn't go well. Find out, you know, better ways to communicate. Find out the look at the different statistics. What's your average length of stay? How often are you are you moving people to the next level of care? Are you, are you being successful, if you will? And, and let them tell you about times they know you're not being successful. Um, make it be a two-sided conversation. And then when you get back to, you know, you have this great relationship, you have a great collaboration, the negotiation becomes the easiest thing in the world. It becomes a, it comes very easy to get a two or three percent increase just by asking for it, and it gets pushed through right away because you have you're doing things that other providers are not. You're separating yourself, even though you may be a small provider. You're willing you're willing to work and deliver better care. You're being someone they want to work with. And if they hem and haw too much about a you know that you're too small to get a, a, a that big of an increase, remind them that it's volume times rate, and if the volume's not there, they're not really paying that much more. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. 
what about Medicaid? You know, I was actually just with a court system provider, you know, the other week, and they were having a hell of a time. They were in network, um, but they couldn't get anything approved. It was really frustrating to them. So do you have any background on Medicaid contracts at all? Some, you know, Hazelden didn't work with Medicaid programs at all. So not a ton with them, but in other places I have. And I, I think it comes down to a lot of the same rules. We're, have meetings with them. Find out why you're not getting approved. And, and especially when it comes to Medicaid, no one, I don't think anyone really does Medicaid and jumps in there to make money. If they did, they would go to commercial and try, try to focus on that. But so the provider wants to treat the patient for altruistic reasons more so. And the insurance company definitely wants this population treated. So what's missing? Why is the care not being approved? What needs to be different? And, and I think having those honest conversations and knowing what you need to be looking for, what, what criteria you need to find or identify, that might make a difference. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, this particular provider, they run an IOP program for the court system, and uh, they were getting denied. I mean, like, for example, one woman, she had uh, six overdoses, so six near deaths, had never been to treatment before, and it's an outpatient model, right? And they were still denying her care. <laughs> Just Wow, that, that to me is shocking. I, mean, I can see if you're denying care because you're saying they need a higher level yeah. at that point. Correct, right. Yeah, you know, it was, yeah, it was really frustrating to them, so I was kind of curious. All right, well, we've covered a lot of ground today. Is there anything that, in your experience, that we haven't covered today that would be useful for providers to know? I don't know. I, th I think, the, you know, one thing I touch on, and this was, uh, I hate, again, I hate to say, give, say good things about Bob Bozanovich, but I'll say a good thing about <laughs> Bob Bozanovich, is that he talked about a salesperson. So many times we see people kind of let, let clinicians run this, and nothing against clinicians. They have a knowledge and a service level that I, I can't provide, but they're oftentimes too close to it emotionally, and they're too close to it um, and where the insurance company is more numbers-based and more business-driven. And so having someone who has that business sense is just unbelievably valuable. Um, it's a worthwhile thing to invest in. That's an interesting comment because I was actually just meeting with a team in Ohio yesterday, and you know they were in front of an insurance panel negotiating rates, and they said something similar where their clinical director and the medical director of the payer were on the same page. They're like, oh, that's right, that's right. But the financial teams were not on board with the same conversation. It happens a lot, and and oftentimes you can have it. Uh, you know, I, I work with people who thought that, you know, it, it, here, I'm gonna try to give a good way to explain this, but you can say, if you have experience working with insurance companies, you realize what you charge doesn't matter. It's what you get paid. What the payment rate you negotiate is. But you can have people who have an old school way of thought that say, hey, we're entitled to our charges, and anything that takes away from them, any kind of discount, is a bad thing. And that paints the insurance company in a bad light. Even though you end up with the same payment, you start seeing all the dollars that aren't there. And if you start treating more people that have insurance, you're going to start seeing it seen as a bad thing because you're focusing on the dollars you're writing off, not the payment you're receiving. So it's in many ways, it's a cultural thing as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Interesting. Well, all right, Leah, really appreciate the time. Super useful information there. If people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do so? Uh, LinkedIn is probably the best way. Uh, Lee Peterson with Golden Insights Consulting. 
Okay. All right. And I, I know that you're booked up these days because we've been trying to work together on a project for a little bit here and I, uh, you're, you're in demand <laughs> is Thank you. I think, the right term. So congratulations on that. Um, but I did want to mention to anyone out there that's looking for in-network help, you know, we are trying to work with Lee um, to kind of help some people get in-network. So if there are people looking for opportunities, feel free to reach out to me or, you know, contact us through the standard circle social contact information and we can see if we could help you out in that regard. Um, so as always, I appreciate everyone's time. Appreciate you joining me here on the Recovery Executive Podcast, and uh, we'll see you next time.